I began to feel spasms of fear now that we were committed to the next fine weather window. What if something were to go wrong? I could see how very much alone we had chosen to be and felt small. Touching the void is only in part, perhaps, the story of a first descent. When we left Richard the next morning to climb up onto the glacier at the foot of Ciula Grande's west face, we had embarked on perhaps the greatest and most pitiless challenge of our lives. The ascent, made over two exhausting days, was not without danger or excitement. To be nearly plucked from a sheer face by rock and icefalls, to snowhole on near vertical faces, is doubtless a tale all its own. But for Simon and I, it was but the prelude to a far greater challenge, an ordeal which would lead us to face the most difficult decisions of our lives. In quite separate circumstances, we were to face a stark choice, that of life over death. A decision that, once taken, we would follow remorselessly to the very end of our strength. It is the story of this ordeal that we take up now, on the morning of the third day, poised for the summit. Poised, too, for a far greater test. A test which we would never have sought voluntarily. It had been a long and bitterly cold night at 20,000 feet, perhaps nearer 21,000. The flutings lay ahead and it was my turn to lead. To make things more difficult I had to exit the cave and somehow climb over the roof, which stretched the full width of the gully. I succeeded, but not without destroying most of the cave and burying Simon, who had belayed me from inside. The sky was clear and there was no wind, but daylight had dubious advantages. It made the climbing easier and allowed me to see whether I was about to slip. On the other hand, it provided unnerving glimpses between my legs of 4,500 feet of emptiness. Knowing that our belays were anything but secure and that any fall would be disastrous made me concentrate on the way ahead. As I approached the dead end in the gully, the angle steadily increased, and it became obvious that I would have to traverse out through the side fluting soon. But which one? I could see that the flutings were not as high near the cave, and that Simon might be able to see more of the way ahead than I could. Which way should it go? Can you see anything? Don't go left. Why? It seems to drop away and it looks bloody dangerous. What's on the right? Can't see, but the flutings are not so steep. It's a lot better than the left, anyway. To my surprise, digging furiously with both axes into the fluting was no harder than climbing the gully and I emerged, breathing hard on the other side, in an identical steepening gully above which I could see the huge cornice of the summit only a rope's length away. Simon floundered up to me and whooped when he saw the summit behind me. Cracked it, he said. I hope so, but this last bit looks bloody steep. It'll go. He set off up the slope, churning huge amounts of snow down onto my exposed belay hole. I pulled my hood over my helmet and turned my back, gazing down at the glacier far below me. Suddenly our exposed stance appalled me. The loose snow was so steep and the belay so precarious that I felt a sickening disbelief in what we were doing. An excited yell tore me from my thoughts and I turned to see the rope disappearing over the top of the gully above. Done it! No more flutings! Come up! He was sitting, legs astride a fluting, grinning manically when I pulled myself wearily out of the gully. Behind him, less than fifty feet from us, the summit cornice reared up in a threatening bulge of snow ice which overhung the west face. 
I quickly moved past Simon and cramponed on firm snow up and to the left, where the summit cornice was smallest. Ten minutes later, I stood beneath the snow ridge dividing west face from east. Simon joined me, and we laughed happily as we took off our sacks and sat on them, carelessly dropping axes and mitts in the snow, content to be quiet a while and look around us. Let's leave the sacks here and go up to the summit, Simon said, interrupting my reverie. The summit? Of course. I'd forgotten we'd only reached the ridge. Escaping from the west face, it seemed to be an end in itself. I looked up at the ice cream cone rising behind Simon. It was only about a hundred feet away. You go ahead. I'll take some photos when you reach the top. We took the customary summit photos and ate some chocolate. I felt the usual anticlimax. What now? It was a vicious circle. If you succeed with one dream, you come back to square one and it's not long before you're conjuring up another, slightly harder, a bit more ambitious, a bit more dangerous. I didn't like the thought of where it might be leading me, as if, in some strange way, the very nature of the game was controlling me. This moment of reaching the summit, this sudden stillness and quiet after the storm, which gave me time to wonder at what I was doing and sense a niggling doubt that perhaps I was inexorably losing control. Was I here purely for pleasure, or was it egotism? Did I really want to come back for more? But these moments were also good times, and I knew that the feelings would pass. Then I could excuse them as morbid, pessimistic fears that had no sound basis. Looks like we're in for a storm, Simon said. He'd been quietly examining the North Ridge, our line of descent, which was rapidly being obscured by mass clouds rolling up from the east face and tumbling out over onto the west side. Even now I could see little of the ridge, and the glacier up which we'd made our approach would be completely covered within the hour. Simon held out his hand, and the first snowflakes drifted down lazily onto his glove. We returned to the sacks and then set off to circle round the minor summit. Simon led the way. We moved roped together, with coils of rope in hand in case of a fall. It was the fastest way, and with the deep powder snow hampering our progress, it was our only chance of getting past the summit in reasonable visibility. If Simon fell, I hoped to have time enough to get my axe buried, though I doubted whether the axe would find any purchase in the loose snow. The clouds closed in on us after half an hour, when we were on the east flank of the second summit. Ten minutes later we were lost in the whiteout. There was no wind, and the snow fell heavily in large, heavy flakes. I was about to call out to Simon and ask if he could see anything, but the words died on my lips as the rope suddenly whipped out through my gloves. At the same time a deep, heavy explosion of sound echoed through the clouds. The ropes ran unchecked through my wet, icy gloves for a few feet, then tugged sharply at my harness, pulling me chest-first into the snow slope. The roaring died away. I knew at once what had happened. Simon must have fallen through the corniced ridge, yet the volume of sound suggested something more like a serac avalanche. I waited. The ropes remained taut with his body weight. Simon! I yelled. You okay? There was no answer. I decided to wait before attempting to move up towards the ridge. If he was hanging over the west side, I reckoned it would be some time before he sorted himself out and managed to regain the ridge. After about fifteen minutes, I heard Simon shouting unintelligibly. 
The weight had come off the rope, and I climbed toward him until I could make out what it was he was saying. I found the ridge! <laughs> I had gathered that, and laughed nervously. He had indeed found a lot more of the ridge than he'd bargained for. I stopped grinning when I reached him. He was standing shakily just below the crest. He shook his head as if trying to dislodge what he'd just seen. When the fright eased, and his body stopped pumping adrenaline, he looked back at the edge of the ridge and quietly told me what had happened. I never saw the ridge. I just glimpsed an edge of it far away to the left. There was no warning, no crack. One minute I was climbing, the next I was falling. It must have broken away forty feet back from the edge. It broke behind me, I think, or under my feet. Either way, it took me down instantly. It was so fast, I had no time to think. I didn't know what the hell was going on except that I was falling. I looked at the drop of the face behind him as he bowed his head and breathed hard, one hand on his thigh trying to stop the telltale tremor in his leg. I was tumbling all over the place and everything seemed to be happening in slow motion. I forgot I was tied to the rope. I, I can remember seeing all these huge blocks of snow falling with me. They fell at the same speed at first, and I thought, this is it. They were massive, ten, twenty-foot square chunks. He was calmer now, but I shivered at the thought of what would have happened if I'd have moved up with him. It would have taken both of us. We were now faced with a very dangerous ridge which, although it had collapsed, was no safer as a result. We could see secondary fracture lines in the snow just back from the edge, and one particular fracture ran parallel to and only four feet away from the crest for as far as we could see. Simon stood up and began moving gingerly along the crest five feet from the...